What I'd like to talk about is the travel narrative, which is in uh, Luke. And the source I'm using for that is by a guy named of, uh, Kenneth Bailey. This is a, two books in one, Poet and Peasant Through Peasant's Eyes. He's a biblical scholar, obviously. Speaks Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. Spent a lot of time in the Middle East, mostly in Lebanon, but some in Israel. His perspective is that you can learn a lot about what's going on in the Bible by observing village life today in the Middle East because the social structures and that kind of stuff in the villages in the Middle East hasn't changed. So he has a lot of really good insights into what's going on in the Bible just from that perspective. He's a PhD of some kind and, and part of this is his thesis. What he did is he went through what's called the Luke travel narrative where Yeshua is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. At the end of this will be the crucifixion. What he's discovered is like lots of things in the Bible, this has a chiastic structure, which means it looks like chevrons. The narrative starts in Luke 9, 51, and goes all the way to 19, 48. Now, we're not going to go through the entire narrative. What I want to do is I want to go through the parables that get told along the way. So where we'll start tonight is in 3 and 3 prime, which is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first of the parables. The rest of it, as you can see, reflected around chapter 13. What I want to do is I want to talk about the parables in the context of this structure that we have, but also in the context of Bailey's perspective on what village life is like. You remember we just got done doing the kingdom parables in Matthew. And what I said then is that the kingdom parables are prophetic. In other words, they, they line up with the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and they also line up with Paul's pastoral letters. One of the things that I said about the parables in Matthew is that they are designed to tell the truth while concealing information. You remember that we talked about it in the context of Isaiah 6, where God tells Isaiah to go talk to these people, but talk in such a way that they won't understand you. So the parables in Matthew are not intended to be understood by the people who are hearing them. And you remember that when Yeshua gave those parables, his disciples says, what? We don't even understand what you're talking about. Why are you doing this? And then Yeshua, of course, goes ahead and explains that they are on their way into exile, and he's speaking in parables. The parables here are different. They are not designed to conceal. The parables in Luke are what I would call Middle Eastern wisdom. So the way people talk and think in the Middle East, and especially in biblical times, is different than the way we do now. Again, I've talked to you about this in the past, the idea of mashalim, which is usually a couplet which is designed to tell some wisdom in a very compact way. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to think about that and chew on it and talk about it and so forth. And you're supposed to tease the wisdom out of it. But the wisdom isn't necessarily on the surface. The other way of encoding a lot of information in a fairly compact delivery is in a story. 
So what the parables are here are what you might call typical stories, in other words, stories of a type, which are designed to convey a lot of truth in a very compact delivery. The problem that most of us have with the parables in Luke here is the culture in which they are being spoken is fairly foreign to us. The first one we're going to do tonight will be the Good Samaritan. And that's the first of the parables in this structure that I've got up there for you. It's in uh, bullet number three, and that'll be the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. And it'll also be Martha and Mary. And I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. But as we go through it, there are things that the people who were listening to those parables would have understood without, without it having to be said. And an example I would use is if I were to say that Catherine went down to King Supers to pick up some groceries. Everybody here knows that she's driving a car or a van in her case. I don't have to say she got into her van and drove down to King Supers to get some groceries. So that's sort of packed into the story and isn't stated. And if you don't understand the culture where these parables are being given, there's a whole lot of what's going on there that sort of goes over your head. The value of Bailey's research is that Bailey has spent a lot of time in Middle Eastern village culture. And so when he writes about these parables, he's able to give you some of that background that isn't obvious in the text of the parable, but everybody listening would have understood. The question in both cases is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What you have is the lawyer and we'll read that in a minute, who asks Yeshua, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Yeshua says, study the Torah and love God and love your neighbor. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? And then that takes us into the Good Samaritan and so forth. We'll talk about that in more detail in just a minute. The next one down is the rich young ruler. And that's in, in Luke 18, 18 through 30. And again, the question is the same. The rich young ruler comes to Yeshua and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then we have some discussion about the Torah. In other words, he says, well, what do you think? I mean, what's the Torah say? The kid says, I've done all that from my youth. So the two things are love God and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor gets played out in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love God gets played out in the story of Mary and Martha. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Those vignettes are all by way of answering that question. Love your neighbor, good Samaritan. Love God is Mary and Martha. So those are both by way of answering the question of what shall I do to inherit eternal life. In Luke 18, where the rich young ruler asks the same question, love your neighbor translates into give your money to the poor. Remember, the rich young ruler is told, sell what you have and give to the poor and follow me. And then love God is where his disciples say, hey boss, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Yeshua says to them that everybody who leaves everything behind and follows me will inherit eternal life. So again, it's love your neighbor, love God in both cases. So you, you see how the, the structures are parallel and in fact the same, but he uses different examples and different stories in each to make the same points. So now what I want to do is go to 
Luke 10 and 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You've all read the Bible multiple times, and you remember that one of the things that happens when Yeshua speaks anywhere is you get local authorities that will come in there and say, all right, just how much does this guy know? You've all been to a Baptist church, and they start asking you questions about, well, what do you eat? What do you mean you won't eat pork? What do you mean? Are you guys into work salvation? All of the sort of standard questions that you get when you come into another group from a different perspective. When Brian and Ray and I first went to the Baptist Board of Elders to decide whether or not we were going to be tenants in the building, we got the standard Baptist exam. You know, you guys believe in work salvation. So you guys think you follow the Torah. Well, do you do this? No, we don't. Oh, then you don't really follow it. And, you know, this whole dialogue that goes on. And so Yeshua, in this case, is in a group, and somebody there who regards himself as, a, as an authority asks Yeshua a question. And notice that the motivation there is to test him. Then we have a discussion on the Torah. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, he the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Yeshua said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So you have this little, this little Torah lesson, which is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Love God, love your neighbor. Good answer, go do that. Now, at this point, if the guy had walked off and put his hands in his pockets and gone off and loved God and loved his neighbor as best he could, he'd have been fine. But he can't leave well enough alone. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Yeshua, who is my neighbor? I would gently suggest he's probably expecting an answer like the people in your community perhaps the people in the synagogue, perhaps Israel. What he's not expecting is what he gets. Oh, one other thing. If you go into the wisdom literature, and I think it's in Sarah, what it says is, don't feed your enemy lest he become stronger than you are. There are a number of sects of Judaism. They don't all like each other. So the idea that your neighbor could be all the people who agree with you, like if you're an Essene, all the Essenes could be your neighbors, or all the Pharisees if you're a Pharisee, or all the Sadducees, whatever. It would even extend so far as perhaps to the whole nation, but it certainly wouldn't extend beyond that, at least not in the mind of this lawyer. Verse 30, Yeshua replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Pause there for a minute. A number of you I know have been on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
I am told, although I don't know this other than having been told it, that the Romans, in fact, had a garrison about halfway down because the place was so notorious for people getting robbed. It was a dangerous road. And as you go down there, you, you know, see these draws that go up and the idea that there some, could be somebody up there that would jump down on you is very believable. So the first thing to understand is everybody walking on that road knows who's in front of him and who's behind him. One of the things you would know is who else is out there. That's one of the things you pay attention to. The other thing to understand is at least the priest is riding a donkey. And this goes back to my example about Catherine and her minivan. The setup was that when priests did their turn in the temple, they would go up, get purified, do a two-week stretch when they were on duty, and then turn around and go home, and home was very often Jericho. Lots of priests lived down in Jericho. Somebody in that class, a priest who was on duty, would not be walking. He would be riding. So the idea here is you have a priest riding on an animal as he goes down. Very possibly the Levite is too. Don't know that for sure. The next thing, and again you all know this, is that a priest, when he comes off duty, is in a state of ritual purity. He is tahar. It is forbidden for a priest to come in contact with a dead body. And the way Yeshua has set this up, a man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And I will suggest, as genealogy, he's also laying face down. One of the things that you'll notice in the Middle East, and it's the same way in the United States or any place else, certain groups wear certain kinds of clothing. And you can walk through a high school and you can tell who the Goths are. And you can walk through a high school and you can tell who the Jocks are. By their dress, you can tell who they are. And it's the same thing in Israel. Everybody would have been able to tell who anybody else was to some degree of specificity by what they wore. So the fact that this guy has been stripped and he's at best down to his skivvies, maybe not even that, you can't tell where he's from looking at him. And of course, I added face down, and we can also assert that you can't tell him whether he's circumcised or not. Furthermore, he's unconscious, so you can't tell by his accent where he's from. So we can't look at his clothes and tell who he is. We can't hear him talk and know who he is. And as I say, I have, I've added on it that he's lying face down, so we can't even tell if he's circumcised. So what Yeshua has set up here is a generic human being. All you know is that this is the image of God. He is a human being. You know nothing else. You don't know whether he's dead or alive. So the first guy going by on his donkey is the priest. And the priest has got an incentive not to find out. Because if the guy is dead or, or dies in the process, he will become unclean and will have to get purified. Now, I, that's a, what I have just given you is the standard take on this. Let's step outside of the standard take for a minute. 
As I understand rabbinic law, a high priest is required to defile himself with a corpse in order to take care of a corpse that nobody else is taking care of. So the, you know, the standard answer that, gee, he doesn't want to become unclean is shaky in that sense because if, if a priest does come upon an unattended body, his duty is to take care of the thing that used to be the image of God, even if it means becoming defiled. Now, having said that, I also led this off by suggesting that everybody knows who's on the road. So it may well be the case that the priest knows that there are people coming along behind him who can do something and so he can justify himself. I, I, you know, I'm putting thoughts in his head and I don't know. Certainly when the Levite comes by, the Levite would probably have known that the priest went before him. And so if the priest didn't stop, that could be taken as permission for him not to stop. If you are walking down the street and you start to have a heart attack and you keel over on the pavement, it is very likely that if the first person who sees you passes by, everybody else will too. Because the first person that passes you by gives everybody else permission to ignore you. And what they suggest that you do is you're walking down the street and you feel a heart attack coming on, you look over and say, you, in the red shirt, heart attack, call 911, boom. And now you have a relationship. You are no longer just a body laying on the ground, you are now somebody who's made contact, and this guy now has a reason not to pass you by. The idea that when one guy passes by, in this case the priest, other people then have implicit permission to pass by is very human. So now what everybody is expecting at this point is a priest, a Levite, and of course the next one in the pecking order is an Israelite. That's how they're expecting the story to go. So when Yeshua throws a Samaritan in there, it's like slapping him in the face. Because the Samaritans are yet another sect of Judaism that the people listening to Yeshua would not have had anything to do with. There's sort of two opinions on who the Samaritans are. Opinion number one is when the Assyrians sanded off the northern kingdom, the way the Assyrians did things is they moved, captured people out of their territory so they wouldn't have any connection to their land and their, you know, this is dad's farm, it's been, and, and so to discourage rebellion, they separated the people from the land they grew up on, moved whole populations and planted them somewhere else. That way they're off balance, they're not in the place they grew up, and it's harder for them to rebel. When the Assyrians took the northern kingdom and took them away, that left a void. So what the Assyrians did is moved somebody else in there. And the people that they moved in looked around and said, huh, so who are the local gods here? How do we worship this God? You know, how do you get along here? And they took up Torah. But the native Hebrews never accepted them as being Jews. Furthermore, they, they have a different opinion of where they worship. The Samaritans believe that they should worship on Mount Gerizim, you know, where Shechem is. The Jews believe you should worship in Jerusalem. So you've got 
all sorts of tension. So the idea of a Samaritan showing up as the hero of this story is a real disconnect. So I'm now down in 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of it. I said at the beginning, the priest was riding an animal. What does the Samaritan do? Puts him on an animal, binds him up, and puts oil and wine on his wounds. Basically does everything necessary to care for this guy. And the next day he took two denarii, and, and of course everybody here knows that a denarius is a day's wage for a common laborer. A skilled laborer would get more. You know, if, you, if you're a skilled mason or a carpenter or something like that that has a skill, you would be worth more than that. We're talking about common laborers. So he gives him two denarii, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Yeshua said to him, you go and do likewise. The idea that a Samaritan is more righteous and more compassionate than a priest or a Levite is sort of by way of sticking it into him. That, that's not anything that they would have expected. Notice that what the Samaritan does is backs out what happened to this guy. He goes down, 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 and then the Samaritan picks him up, picks him up and, and restores him, puts clothes on him, puts, you know, brings him up. And so, so it's sort of a, a backing out, if you will, of, of what happened with the robbers. The first of these parables then is by way of teaching what it means to love your neighbor. Several things that are going on with a Samaritan. In the first place, he doesn't know if this guy is a decoy. In other words, you've all seen the scenario where somebody gets a flat tire, quote unquote, and standing out there waving, and then somebody pulls up to help with a flat, and people come out and jump them and rob them. So the idea here is this guy could be a decoy, and you could have the robbers up in the mountain waiting for somebody to stop and help him and then jump on whoever stops and helps him. The second thing is, remember we said we have no idea who this guy is. All we know is he's a generic human being. Now, put yourself back in the old Hopalong Cassidy days or Wyatt Earp or you know whatever cowboy guy you like, and the stock Hollywood treatment of the American West with cowboys and Indians. What happens if an Indian rides into town with a white man draped over his horse and says, I found this guy in the desert? Certainly there's, there's a risk there that the townspeople will say, yeah, sure. And the Indian may in fact be in trouble. Well, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is Jewish territory. For a Samaritan, to pick up a random guy laying on the ground and carry him to the nearest town where, gee, look at this guy I found, and all the people say, wait a minute, that's Uncle Mortimer. What do you mean you found him, you filthy Samaritan? So there, there's some risk to the Samaritan 
beyond just the possibility that he's going to get ambushed. He certainly could get ambushed by the robbers, but he's also in potential danger from this guy's family or tribe or, or town, whoever he is. Because we don't know who he is. You know, they all look alike. All of them dark-skinned, dark hair. It's not like even like cowboys and Indians, where you got potentially blonde cowboys and, and dark Indians. Don't know who this guy is. So there's, there's a lot of risk there. But again, to sort of come full circle, the question is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Two parts to the answer. Love your neighbor, love God. We just had Yeshua set up an object lesson of what it means to love your neighbor. By setting up a generic human being who has no relationship to you whatsoever in any way that you can tell, and showing that somebody goes in and has compassion. And he forces this lawyer to admit that the one who is loving his neighbor is the Samaritan, not any of the other people. The lawyer's sort of blinders are, and again, put yourself back in, back in the Old West, you know, where you got cowboys and Indians. And neighbors would have been the townspeople. Indians would have been out there. And so what the lawyer is thinking about when he's thinking in terms of neighbors is he's thinking in terms of, I'm, I'm one of the cowboys and I'm living in town and my neighbors are the people in the settlement. Doesn't extend to all those Indians out there or Mexicans or anybody else. And what Yeshua has done by this story is without preaching at this guy, he has suddenly opened up his understanding of who is his neighbor. And again, that's the beauty of a parable is because you can pack a whole lot of information. I could have read this thing in a minute, but I've been talking about it now for half an hour because there's that much stuff in it. And that's the power of a story. Now, the second half of the answer, love your neighbor, then love God, we now go down to the vignette of Martha and Mary. And now as they went on their way, Yeshua entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to them to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. What's necessary? Love your neighbor. Love God. Now, I don't believe that Martha didn't love God. But what Yeshua is saying here in this context, and he said it in other places. Remember when the Pharisees come and ask him, how come your disciples don't fast? And he says, while the bridegroom's here, nobody fasts. There'll be time for fasting later. So in that same spirit, what he's saying is, love your neighbor, good Samaritan, love God, I am here among you. Spend time with me while I'm with you instead of being distracted by all the stuff that is happening in the world. This whole vignette is still by way of answering the lawyer's question. Questions on Mary and Martha or the Good Samaritan? Okay, we got 15 minutes. Let's now go to Luke 18. See if we can get all of three done.
Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice, same exact question. Except now this guy is not testing him necessarily as the lawyer was. And Yeshua said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, the ruler, all these I have kept from my youth. When Yeshua heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The pattern is exactly the same. The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then we have a little Torah lesson. You know the commandments. And to the lawyer he says, what's the Torah say? In both cases he goes back to scripture. Gives him a little lesson. Then he says, love your neighbor. Isn't that what sell your possessions and give to the poor is? And of course, the young ruler is having just a bit of problem making that happen because he's attached to the things of the world, as are we all. Don't get too condemnatory about this poor guy because we all have the same problem. So now down to verse 24. Yeshua, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. One of the things that I am told is that when you go on a tour in a Jerusalem, people will tell you that there's a gate called the eye of the needle and that a camel could not go through it fully laden. And so in order for the camel to go through that gate, it had to dump its burden. The camel can then go through without its burden and the Stuff has to be carried in. It is my understanding that's, that's a tourist story and doesn't actually exist, but I don't know that for sure. But that's one of the things that I've told you here in Jerusalem. But what he's saying here in context is wealth and the things of this world can be a snare. We all need the things of this world. In other words, there's, there's nothing bad about having enough money to feed yourself and pay your rent and your phone bill and pay all the things that, that you need. Nothing wrong with that. God knows you need them and he'll provide them for you. The problem is wealth can be a surrogate for lots of things. It can be a surrogate for power. In other words, people who have a lot of wealth tend to have a lot of influence because the people around them want that wealth. So wealth then becomes a surrogate for power. It can also become a surrogate for security. If you've got enough money in the bank, your temptation is, I got enough money in the bank. I don't, I don't have to worry about anything. So there's lots of things that wealth can be. And what Yeshua is saying here is, if you get more of it than you need, and what you need varies by circumstance, but if you get more of it than you need, it can become a snare. And it becomes very difficult then to put that money into proper perspective so that you have a right relationship with God. Notice, love your neighbor, love God. What he's saying is give your wealth away, love your neighbor, 
And he's also saying that your wealth is standing between you and your relationship with God. Then he further goes on, 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So notice he's saying several things there. First off, Peter is saying in the context of we love you as opposed to this guy who isn't willing to give everything up and follow you. So what he's doing is he's drawing a a distinction between himself and the rest of the disciples and the rich young ruler. Because the rich young ruler is not willing to give everything up and follow Yeshua. These guys says we are. So in in that sense, this is both in the context of love God. Love your neighbor, give it away, but then love God, come and follow me. And the rich young ruler isn't willing to do either one of those things. And what Peter is saying is, we in fact have left all this worldly stuff behind and we are following you. Now notice what Yeshua says though. For those who do that, you will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what he's saying is, instead of getting your claws into the things of this world and hanging on with a death grip, if you turn loose of it, what God will do is multiply it back to you and on top of that, you get eternal life. I don't remember which passage of scripture it is, but the, the scripture, you know, give and it will give back to you. you know, by the measure you use to give, it will be measured back to you. But the idea here is if you are generous with the things that God provides you with, he will recognize that he can trust you with more. If in fact you are grasping and stingy with the thing he trusts you with, then he recognizes he can't trust you with more. To wrap this up, that's three and three prime in our, in our outline. And in both cases, the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in both cases, the answer is the same. He just uses different examples, but basically the answer is the same in both cases. Would somebody like to close in prayer? Let us shine.